Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to episode 30 of Push Dose EMS, your monthly educational offering from the Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. I'm your host, Jeff Matcha, clinical education QA manager for the county. Joining me today is a slew of usual suspects. So going down my list, I have EMS Division Director Dan Pojar. Welcome, Dan. Hey, Jeff. Happy New Year. Assistant Medical Director, Dr. Ben Weston. Dr. Weston, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Happy to be here and Happy New Year to everyone. Uh, our EMS fellows this year, uh, welcome Dr. Aaron McGlynn. Dr. McGlynn, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. And Dr. Nicola Klinsky. Dr. Klinsky, welcome. Hey there. Before we jump into the topic of the month, uh, looking at overdoses and opioid use, uh, any updates from the system, Dan? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Just got a couple items here. It'll be real quick. Uh, we are continuing to work with the fire departments and the data subcommittee to develop uh, the new consolidated image trend uh, report form system-wide. Uh, so there will be some great new enhancements to uh, the form, some abilities to uh, uh, reduce uh, some of the options that we have as far as, you know, uh, duplicates. Uh, so say you're going after hypertension, uh, we can start to pare down that list and make that a little bit easier for the field providers to navigate through drop-down menus. Uh, we're also looking at some validation rules uh, and then also uh, just clean up the report so it's easier to utilize uh, for you guys in the field uh, specifically because, uh, um, quite honestly, some agencies before had no control over their form. And now uh, with us uh, moving towards this consolidated one, we have total control over the form. So if there's ads, edits, deletions that need to be made, um, please contact your representative from your agency that is sitting on the data subcommittee. And we'll be sure to take a hard look at that um, as we continue to move this forward. Also. Later this year, uh, in November, the county EMS system will turn 50 years old. So we are starting to have early conversations of planning a celebration to celebrate 50 years of great care in a pre-hospital environment to our citizens. If you or anyone on your agency is interested in helping to perhaps design a 50-year patch, we are looking for some designs uh, to be submitted to uh, our office and also the, the fire department in general just to uh, perhaps vote on and, and make a system patch to celebrate that. So uh, if any of you are artistically creative, please submit those. And then just a reminder for this year, National Registry is coming up in March for a handful of providers in the system. And then the entire system will recertify their uh, state license in June. So uh, just look for a couple of those timelines coming up for your individual certifications. Thanks. Thank you, Dan. And a message from medical direction, Dr. Weston. All right. Thanks, Jeff. So I think today's podcast is an interesting one, and it's part of a three-month education plan here to really focus on opioids, opioid use disorder, addiction, uh, and then eventually talk about medication-assisted treatment for opioids and how we can better engage in that. Uh, so this is the first month of that. It'll focus on a general opioid overview. And this is part of, obviously, our podcast, but also our lectures, our coffee talks, our newsletter, other education uh, modalities that we have within Milwaukee County, within the Office of Emergency Management, um, to really hit this on a number of different fronts uh, for our different learners. Uh, now, this is also part of a multi-pronged approach, not just through OEM, but through the fire departments, through the broader county infrastructure, municipalities, the health departments, the hospitals, and community organizations to talk about uh, and address opioid use disorder uh, and opioid use and overdose in our community. In 2021, um, we had a record 644 
drug deaths in Milwaukee County. That is a, a record for uh, close to 20 years. Um, and then narcotic deaths in particular, so opioid-related deaths were uh, 548, also a, a record. 2022 is nearly as high and cases are continuing to come in um, as, as those are still being processed. So a major issue in our community uh, and a really important topic for, for this podcast and other aspects of education in our system. So I'll hand it back to you, Jeff. Thanks, Dr. Wesson. Yes, definitely an in-depth and important topic to start our 2023 discussions on. All right, and so on that important topic note, uh, I will hand it over to our fellows, Dr. McGlynn and Dr. Lukinski, to dive us into this topic. All right, thanks very much, Jeff. So hello, everyone, and Happy New Year. Thankfully, with the new year, the dynamic duo is back together as we would like to welcome back Dr. McGlynn from Maternity Leave. Welcome back, Erin. Thank you. Great to be back. So this month kicks off a three-month series like Dr. Weston introduced that's going to cover and look at the epidemic that's been festering since before COVID, before RSV, and before the flu in the last few years. We're going to discuss the world of opioids. We know that the opioid epidemic is an ever-growing problem, and we've all cared for or know someone that's suffering from this unfortunate disease process, which has claimed so many lives. And we say disease process because addiction, whether it's from alcohol, gambling, or opioids, is very much a disease that patients suffer from and have many negative effects on health. Exactly. And as EMS providers, you all have frequent contact and interactions with these patients, which, while frustrating at times, sets us up to have some potential positive impacts on their care and disease trajectory. Other EMS agencies around the country have successfully begun programs to assist patients suffering from opiate addiction in order to help them get clean and free from addiction. With these successes in mind, we are hoping to implement similar programs here in Milwaukee County, hence why we are dedicating the next couple of months to opiate education. So this month, we're gonna focus on opioid intoxication and its management. Next month, we'll focus more on the opioid addiction and dependence side of things. And finally, in the third month, we'll discuss treatments and how we're hoping to address the crisis. We have a lot to cover, so let's dive in. So we're going to start kind of way back at the beginning to kind of discuss, you know, first off, like what are opioids particularly? They have been around since ancient times when folks realized opium was useful in treating pain and gave you a nice little high. Morphine was synthesized from opium in the early 1800s and was used mainly for soldiers in combat. Heroin was synthesized later in the 1800s with the hope that it had a faster onset of action while being less addictive. It was also found to have uh, effects on positive effects on coughing, sleep, and anxiety. So it was considered to be kind of a wonder drug, and it didn't even require a prescription. Unfortunately, it was very much addictive, and abuse rates surged. Then the 90s came along, and big pharma developed the synthetic opioids like Oxycontin and Vicodin, and convinced us that they were less addictive if used in smaller doses. So docs became more liberal with their prescribing practices, kicking off the epidemic we find ourselves in today. Prescription drugs are expensive, which is why people turn to heroin. It is cheaper, more readily available, and helps satisfy that opiate craving and addiction. Opioids work by binding to pain receptors and blocking their response. The blockage of these receptors in the central nervous system also results in a euphoric type effect, like a high which is why they are so addictive. Additionally, opioids binding of these receptors result in respiratory depression and ultimately respiratory arrest, which is why they can be so deadly. Different opioids have a stronger affinity for these receptors, meaning you may need less of it to pr produce said effect. This is commonly referred to as potency. For example, fentanyl is more potent than morphine, meaning you can achieve the same effect like pain control, euphoria, respiratory depression at smaller doses. We'll explain why this is important in a couple of minutes. 
Now, thankfully, we have Narcan to combat these effects of these opiates. Narcan works by competing with opiates and preventing them from binding to their receptors, helping reverse these effects. Unfortunately, the more potent the opiate, the more Narcan required to reverse this effect. And while Narcan works great on reversing opiates effect, it's not the only aspect of op opiate treatment. Rather, it's an aspect of the overall management in opiate overdose. Again, more on that in a second. Unfortunately, we have come a long way from people simply just using and abusing straight heroin. We know that it isn't simply just heroin anymore. These drugs are being mixed with or cut with stronger synthetic opioid analogs like fentanyl. This helps enhance the high achieved using that drug. Unfortunately, there's no regulatory body which controls the production of these heavy hitting cocktails, which makes them very dangerous and increases the likelihood of inadvertently overdosing. What's worse is that there's no easy way to tell when heroin has been cut with these stronger alternatives. Now, this dangerous aspect brings us back to the important concept of a drug's potency. These synthetic opiates are stronger in that they are more potent and bind to opiate receptors more tightly. So a patient might think they are using the same amount of heroin to produce their desired high, when in fact it's cut with a hefty dose of fentanyl, resulting in profound respiratory depression. This patient will still respond to Narcan, but will require more and more frequent dosing as fentanyl is a stronger competitor for the opiate receptor than just boring old heroin. Now, where this gets really scary is that there are synthetic opioids that are more potent than fentanyl, things like carfentanyl, which is not as responsive to standard Narcan dosing and makes it extremely dangerous. So what is it that we're seeing in Milwaukee? Well, Dr. Weston kind of covered this uh, in his intro, but the incidence of co-contaminants in street drugs is rising and fentanyl has established its presence here in the county. In 2017, we saw 188 deaths in which fentanyl was involved. And in 2021, that number was 508 deaths with fentanyl on board. That is just absolutely staggering. When you look at other types of deaths around the county over this time period, such as suicide, homicide, motor vehicle accidents, et cetera, those rates have been relatively stable. Narcotic-related deaths are the only types that have seen a steady increase over the past five years. We have a clear problem and something needs to be done. In fact, all the narcotic-related deaths in general have been on the rise since 2017. At that time, we had 337 narcotic-related deaths, and then in 2021, there were 548 narcotic-related deaths. The current running tally for 2022 is 396, but as Dr. Weston mentioned, we still have cases coming in, and that number may be similar to that of 2021. All right, so now that we've kind of given a broad overview of like what opiates are and kind of the problem that is present within our county, we're going to cover a couple cases to help highlight some of the nuances when it comes to evaluating and caring for patients who are concerned for opiate intoxication. So let's start with the first case. Pretty typical. You're called for a possible DOA. You arrive on scene, you find a patient passed out on a park bench with very shallow breathing, but they still have a pulse. There's a needle laying next to him. What do we do? What's, what's going on here? All right, well, this seems pretty obvious. This man needs Narcan to reserve, reverse the respiratory depression. If it's not reversed, these patients decompensate and go into arrest from hypoxemic or hypercarbic respiratory failure. Like Nick mentioned a minute ago, Narcan is not the only treatment these patients need. Remember your ABCs. This man's airway and breathing need managing first. Try to reposition, place an NPA, and start with BVM to assist with ventilations if he is truly hypoventilating. Avoid reflexively giving Narcan as your first step in treatment. The Narcan will help restore these functions, but we want to avoid any decompensation, especially into cardiac arrest before the Narcan has time to take effect. We'd like to start with one milligram intranasal as outlined in our guidelines. You might need to assist with ventilations with your bag valve mask, but that's okay. Sometimes the Narcan needs a couple of minutes to take effect. 
Exactly. Remember, Narcan works by antagonizing or competing with the, the binding sites of opioids, preventing them from exerting their full effect. But this reversal is not immediate. So we want to optimize the airway and breathing to prevent further collapse while the Narcan takes effect. Now, the goal of the Narcan dosing is to hit that sweet spot where we reverse the respiratory depression without precipitating full-on withdrawal. As Aaron just mentioned, we start with the one milligram per OEM guidelines. We can repeat that every three minutes until the respiratory depression improves. Again, we're looking for that sweet spot, not necessarily reversing to full consciousness. Now there's no upper limit to naloxone, but we need to consider other etiologies of respiratory depression if there's no response, especially to repeat dosing. We'll get to this in a couple minutes. And another thing to point out is one important component of opiate withdrawal is nausea. So we wanna make sure we're treating that with nadansteron or Zofran if those do occur. All right, so I've got a second case for you. You're called for a person sleeping on a bench. You arrive to find another male passed out on a park bench with a baggie of residual white substance in it. He's easily arousable, but clearly intoxicated and nods off. His vitals, including respiratory rate are normal and his pupils are pinpoint. So this seems like a case where Narcan may not necessarily be warranted. Remember, the role of Narcan is to reverse the respiratory depression caused by opiates. It is not needed for someone who is just riding out the high and is otherwise stable. This is someone you should consider transport and monitoring, but do not need to slam them with a bunch of Narcan. Well, why not? If you give them Narcan, that's clearly going to fix the problem with their opioid bender. As we discussed in the first case, our goal with Narcan is to reverse respiratory depression precipitated by opioids not to completely reverse the opiate's effect. Slamming someone with a bunch of Narcan will be sure to wake them up, but they will not be happy campers and will be in a quite a bit of distress. Opiate withdrawal is no fun, as we'll discuss in future podcasts. These can result in the patient becoming combative and severely agitated, putting them and you at risk. Also, Narcan does have the possibility of precipitating severe pulmonary edema if given in higher doses. So we want to be careful here. With the doses you guys are given in the field, this isn't a huge risk, but we want to be mindful prior to giving larger doses. Now, what about my patient in cardiac arrest who clearly just used heroin? Why are we not giving these people Narcan? You just told me that these patients arrest from their profound respiratory depression, and we know that Narcan reverses that respiratory depression. Why shouldn't I just give Narcan? A couple reasons why. First off, the data does not support it, and we do our best to limit interventions or treatments which do not have any benefit. Further, there is some data to suggest that Narcan administration during cardiac arrest can actually worsen outcomes as it can result in increased cerebral metabolism at a time when we don't want that. But some may say, screw it, they're already dead, why not just try it? But think about it this way. Managing a cardiac arrest is full of complex tasks that require critical actions to ensure the best outcome for the patient. This includes airway management, establishing an IV and giving fluids and epinephrine, defibrillations if indicated, and managing the scene overall. So we want to avoid adding additional tasks to further complicate the process, especially when there's no data to show that Narcan is useful in folks with cardiac arrest. Now, if and when you achieve ROSC and you feel Narcan may help with the patient's spontaneous ventilation slash oxygenation, then Narcan be considered, but there is no benefit in giving it prior to that point. So these patients need high quality ACLS with good ventilation and oxygenation. Narcan reverses respiratory depression, not necessarily respiratory arrest. They have already progressed past respiratory depression and entered the realm of respiratory and cardiac arrest. So they're well past Narcan at this point. Save that Narcan for the next patient who hasn't gotten to this stage. All right, so let's move on to our third case here. So you're called to a care facility of a 70 year old female with altered mental status and you find her to be lethargic, difficult to arouse, and not moving any extremities spontaneously. 
she's hypotensive, hypoxemic, and her pupils are pinpoint, but the rest of her exam is otherwise unremarkable. Steph tells you that she was on a normal self earlier this morning, but then was found altered when they checked on her after breakfast. Staph denies any opiate use. She does not change after you provide one dose of Narcan. What's going on here, Erin? So we know you all see a lot of opioid use and overdose in your day-to-day work. In medicine, we often say when you hear hoofbeats, look for horses, not zebras, as in common things are common. It's tempting in this case to suspect that this patient may actually have an opioid use disorder and that the nursing home doesn't know about it or maybe aren't very forthcoming about it. However, it's really important to keep a few other things on your differential when you see a patient you think might have overdosed. So let's start with this patient's vitals. She's in a state of shock, and while hypotension may look like an opioid overdose on the surface, it shouldn't be your first thought. Hypotension is shock until proven otherwise. So run through your possible ideologies of shock, such as septic, cardiogenic, hemorrhagic, and think about medication toxicities and side effects, especially things like beta blockers and calcium channel blockers in these nursing home patients on a lot of medications. Then there's her history. She's not or has ever been on opioids that we know of, which might make an opioid overdose less likely. Finally, she has absolutely no change after receiving Narcan. All of this should make you pause and rethink about your diagnosis and management. This case actually highlights an important concept that can be applied when caring for all patients. When something isn't adding up or making sense, like a patient's just not responding the way you expect them to, start back at the beginning, maybe get a little more history, re-examine your patient, See if you're overlooking something. Don't let your initial diagnosis or thought anchor you into a treatment path. This also brings up another good point. It's a good idea to approach these patients like you would any other. Start with your ABCs. To avoid anchoring an opioid overdose, try to start with respiratory assessment of rate, depth of respirations, lung sounds, etc. Then check pupils to see if opioid overdose picture fits and proceed with the appropriate treatment. Some potential alternative diagnoses are things like stroke, and other overdoses, as Aaron mentioned. Pontine strokes or strokes of the brainstem can cause pinpoint pupils and altered mental status that might look like an opiate overdose. And other overdoses, such as clonidine, can also mimic overdose with pinpoint pupils and respiratory depressions. And then even things like sepsis can look similar with altered mentation and respiratory changes. Now, we're not saying these are the most common diagnoses. They're just things to keep in, in mind, especially in those cases when you try a dose of Narcan and it doesn't seem to work. Finally, we just want to acknowledge that the social and legal aspects of opioid use make it sometimes difficult to get a reliable history. Understandably, patients might deny opiate use even when their clinical picture seems really consistent with it. Again, this is all the more reason to do a really thorough exam and make sure we aren't missing any of these mimics and get the best history you can. We know you see this pretty much every day, but we are just touching briefly on basic airway management. In the setting of an opioid overdose, respiratory depression is the main problem. Bag valve mask is usually enough to temporize until you're able to reverse it with Narcan or proceed with an advanced airway if Narcan does not do the trick. Remember, be thinking of other diagnoses in these situations. Consider two-person bagging to get a good seal, especially on patients with obesity and beards. One person holds the mask and performs a jaw thrust while the other person bags. Also consider an oral or nasal airway if you are having trouble with ventilating. Other great adjuncts are end tidal CO2 monitoring and suctioning. Finally, we're just going to touch on refusal of care. This comes up a lot in the setting of opioid use disorder, often after reversal with Narcan. Sometimes it's influenced by the fact that patients are precipitated into withdrawal too. So we'll talk more about this in the coming months, but these patients should be encouraged to go to the hospital for several reasons. For one, they may require redosing with Narcan, depending on how much of and what drug they used. 
Two, they can be connected to resources for treatment and even receive medication-assisted therapy in the emergency department. And three, they should be evaluated for any other underlying medical ideologies of their symptoms. Remember that there's both a guideline for refusal of care as well as a checklist tool to help guide you. We'd recommend starting with the guideline as this includes things like what to do if the patient is a minor or if police are chaptering the patient. Then you can move on to using the checklist tool to make sure you aren't missing anything. Patient refusals are dangerous in the sense that the patient is not being fully evaluated in a hospital to ensure there's no other processes going on. So we really want to ensure that the patient is fully aware of the risks in refusing care so they can make the most educated and safest decision. This is why it's crucial that patients have decision-making capacity. Someone who's intoxicated may not have this capability, but usually after Narcan is administered, they are capable of making decisions like this. So they could refuse care, but they should be cautioned and transport should be strongly encouraged. Lastly, a note on refusals in general, most people do not have the high level of medical training that you do. So they may not have the best understanding of the risks they're putting themselves in when refusing care. This is why the guideline and checklist are in place to make sure we have this discussion and educate the patient appropriately before they refuse care. Adhering to this guideline and checklist can also protect you, the provider, should there be a bad outcome as a result of the patient refusing care, which is always a risk in our line of work. All right, and that's about going to wrap it up today for our podcast. So remember, in someone with an opiate overdose, think about your basic airway management, repositioning the airway, providing bag valve masks if needed, making sure you get Narcan on board while doing those things, and then considering other etiologies of the patient's altered mental status if they're not quite responding to Narcan or the story's not adding up. Hopefully this gives you more of an understanding of opioids and gives you a better framework when approaching acutely intoxicated patients. Unfortunately, the increasing prevalence of opiate overdoses makes it hard not to become numb when caring for these patients, but these patients have such a high risk of death and require a lot of help, and we can provide that help. Next month, we'll explore opiate addiction more in depth with the help of one of our psychiatry colleagues. Until then, keep up the great work. We know you guys are extremely busy and our call volumes have been on the rise, so please reach out if you're feeling burnt out or overextended. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next month. Drs. McGlynn and McClinsky, thank you so much, as always, for your knowledge, expertise, and taking the time out to talk with us about a very serious subject. Uh, having those case studies is fantastic as a baseline and example uh, for what we're seeing out there in the field. So thank you. And thanks everybody else for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks to everybody out there who's taking the time out to listen. If as we go forward, if there's any other topic areas you where you would like to see us take a deep dive, please, as always, feel free to reach out emseducation at milwaukeecountywi.gov. Thanks again and stay safe.